you have a Bible, please open it to Romans chapter 7. We'll be finishing up that chapter in one large chunk today from verse 7 through verse 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from us in the pocket in the pew in front of you. You can find Romans 7 on page 887. We enter into a text today that is filled with trouble. Coming off the Christmas season, I was thinking of this almost like the house and home alone. Everywhere we get, everywhere we look, there are ice steps, there are red-hot handles, there are precariously perched irons, there are Legos striven about the floor. This, of course, makes us the robbers and the thieves, which shouldn't be applied strictly, but nevertheless, I feel like there are dangers all over the place in this text. We've talked previously about Romans chapter 7 and in the last passage that we studied, the first six verses of Romans 7, and there were difficulties there about how Paul spoke of the law and yet also spoke of our moral obligations, that, that sometimes we get confused about those things. We tried to clarify that, but even in clarifying that, we come today to a passage that is, is filled with trouble. Paul uses some incredibly surprising language. He talks about himself being a alive apart from the law. He talks about his sin being dead and then being awakened on his own. Further on, Paul is going to speak like he's some sort of bifurcated person or some sort of possessed man who does not do the things that he wants to do, but the very things that he doesn't want to do are the things that he wants to do. We even have trouble understanding whether or not Paul is talking about himself. Is this A rhetorical device. Is he actually speaking for Adam or is he speaking for all of Israel? Before we get into the meat of the sermon, though, I want to read the passage and then clarify one of the more perplexing things in this passage. So let us go first to the text and then we can hopefully try and clear some things up before we get to actually going through the passage this morning. Read with me from Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. There Paul writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. 
For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There are many difficulties in this section of God's word. There are many things that we must be careful about. Probably the most major question that occurs when we come to this particular passage, especially in verses 13 through 20, is the question of when is Paul speaking? Is Paul speaking here in the first person? I do think it's Paul who's speaking. I don't think it's a rhetorical device. I don't think he's speaking for Adam. I don't think he's speaking for Israel. I think he's speaking of his own experience. But is that experience an experience that is Christian or is it an experience of Paul before he came to know Jesus Christ? So is, is he speaking of the struggle that Christians have in their pursuit of holiness? Or is he speaking of the struggle one undergoes when they take on the law? Is it a, a futile struggle for holiness under the law? Or is it a hope-filled struggle in the spirit for holiness? My various times studying this passage, which have never been quite as as full as this week. This is the only time I've ever preached this passage. I've looked at it at other times, but this is the only time I've ever actually preached it. I was with many people certain, maybe not certain, maybe at least leaning towards the idea that this is a post-conversion experience. I think that there are a number of good reasons for this, exegetically, which we're not going to actually get into. I think that there are a number of good reasons for this, but there's kind of larger scope reasons for why that is an excellent way to handle this passage. If nothing else, it, it provides something of a, a, nice, a nice temper to the positivity of Romans chapter 6. When you come to Romans chapter 6 and you read through it, as a Christian, you can, you can kind of feel like that's not my experience. And Paul kind of makes it seem like there's a, a switch that goes on. And he says, well, listen, you can, you can no longer present yourselves as members to unrighteousness, but you are to present yourselves as members to righteousness, as instruments to carry out the very good things that God has you to do. And as a Christian, you can look at that and say, that's great, Paul. I don't think it's quite that easy. And then you come to chapter 7 and you say, now that seems to be the experience that I have had. And I think that the vast majority of us who have struggled with holiness, striving to do the things that God commands, when we hear Paul speak about, I want to do good, but I find that in my members, I, I struggle to get them to do what I want them to do, I think that we can agree that that, that seems like our own struggles as Christians. And what's more, this seems to be the very thing that's implicit elsewhere in Paul. Paul is continually writing to churches to encourage them to continue to deny the flesh and to put on 
the, the clothing of Christ, to continue to, to do away with the deeds that they used to know, the deeds of the flesh and the lying and the manipulating, the thieving, the stealing, the sexual immorality that they, they used to have, and to put on Christ and to struggle and strain for holiness. Here he just seems to be more explicit about it. In those passages, we know that Paul is saying this because it doesn't come easy to Christians. Christians will indeed struggle with holiness. They will indeed struggle putting to death the things of the flesh. There's a number of other things that I think you can argue for this to be a post-conversion experience of Paul's. And I don't think that you're wrong in your theology of struggling toward holiness. I think that Paul expects that Christians are going to struggle there. And I think that he expects that they will actually struggle. Not only will it be a struggle, but they will struggle to strive and gain holiness in this life. I always saw this chapter that way. Even in in hearing other arguments against it, I always thought of it that way until Wednesday. I think Wednesday must have been a bad day. It wasn't that Wednesday was necessarily a bad day. I just, things popped out to me when I was reading this text and I, I just, I can't sustain that view anymore. And I want you to know, it's not that I think that that view is is heretical. It's not that that view is, is necessarily wrong. I think that there's many, many good things that come from viewing this as, as a Christian struggle for holiness. But there are three things I want to point out about the passage that makes me doubt whether that's true or not. And I'm going to warn you, these are not the three points of the sermon. So now you're thinking you're lying to us because now there's six points in your sermon, but we'll get through these pretty quick. So there's really only three points, but we'll get there. First, in chapter six, Paul insists pretty flatly that we, and flatly not being that he thinks it's lame, but just pretty boldly and explicitly that we are free in Christ. So back in chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, Paul says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Right? He goes on in chapter 7 to say this is exactly what has happened to us in Christ. The analogy of marriage that he used last week. There has been a death. You have died in Christ. You are now free from sin. But in chapter 7, he's pretty clear that whatever is going on here, he is not free from the power of sin. In 7.14, he says this in the middle of this very, very important section. For we know that the law is spiritual, but he says, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I know that you can, you can square that away. I know that you can make sense of it. But that seems really difficult to me for Paul to use such stark language about the freedom that he has in Christ and saying that he is sold under sin is, is slavery language, that, that sin is a power over him. He simply insists in chapter 6 that that is not quite the case anymore. Paul insists, secondly, in chapter 6, that we have control over our members. We have control over our bodies. We have control over the things that that belong to us so that we can use them as instruments of righteousness. 6.13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So he says, you can do this. Now, whether or not 
this is a difficult choice. Whether or not this is hard for you to do is not really Paul's point there. His point is only that now that you've been freed from the law and you've been freed from your captivity to sin, this is actually a possibility for you. Yet continually throughout chapter 7, as I read Paul, it doesn't sound like this is a possibility for him here. Listen to what he says in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. He says, I I want to do what is good. I want to do what is right, but I can't do it. Well, to me, that just sounds as as though it's a completely different reality from what he just got done talking about in chapter 6. Verse 23 sounds precisely the same. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. If he is captive to it, then he is not powerful over it. And lastly, Paul insists that we are free from the law in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 in the beginning of it. 6.15, the end of 14, we are not under the law but under grace. What then are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? The idea that you are not under the law anymore. The law is no longer a power. You are not captive to the law. You are not burdened by the law anymore. In 7.6, he says, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve. Now that word serve there is closely related to the same word that we translate in the New Testament quite often as slave. Okay? It's the work of a slave. It's the work of a servant. That we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code, which is clearly referring to the law. And then at the end of verse 25, though, he says, So then, I myself serve. Same word. I serve the law of God with my mind. Which is precisely what he said, I don't do in chapter 6. So while it is fair... And while it is even important to to remind yourself of the great struggle that there's going to be to gain holiness in the world for Christians, that it's not an automatic thing, that you just don't, don't become a Christian, you don't get converted and regenerated in your heart, and then all of a sudden, like, you're super holy. It doesn't work that way. It's good to remind us of that. I don't think that that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. That does, however, bring us up to what Paul is talking about here And for that, we then turn back to our text. And again, I think that this is Paul talking about his working in the law before he was converted and in the Spirit. The first thing that Paul wants us to remember is that the law is good. The law is good. Paul's had harsh words to say about the law. He's had a lot of difficult things to say, especially to people who love the law. Not only is the law not needed for holiness, as he argued back in chapter 6, but in the beginning of chapter 7, he actually makes it seem like the law is a hindrance to holiness. The law will actually keep you from gaining holiness. It's not needed for salvation. As a matter of fact, what he is arguing is that the only thing that comes from the law are bad things. Evil and wickedness and sin are what come from the law. So it makes good sense that we ask the question, is the law sin? He says, well, no, by, by no means. There are two ideas, two kind of competing concepts within this section that do some incredibly heavy lifting. The first is the word no. He says, I would not have known sin. Does he mean he, he, he wouldn't have been a sinner? 
If God hadn't given him the law, then he would have been okay. Is that what Paul seems to be saying? I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. He also then talks about being alive and dead. Sin came alive and I came, became dead. I was once alive apart from the law. Some understanding of the way in which Paul is writing here, I think, can help us. Typically, when we come to the Word of God, we who believe that it is the inerrant, the infallible Word of God, who is both written by the Apostle and written by the Spirit, we come to it most naturally thinking that what we are hearing is the perspective of God, which is right and good and true. We do want to be like the Thessalonians. Paul says this about them. He constantly thanks God for them, that when they received the word of God, which you heard from us, he says, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Right? And so we want to do that. We, we hear Paul write, and we immediately want to say, well, this is the word of God. It might be Paul who is writing, he might write with his own flourishes and with his own style, but, but it is the word of God. God is giving us his perspective through Paul. But I would tell you that when we come to these autobiographical sections, although it is still the Holy Spirit who is authorizing it, and it is still inerrant, and it is still true, and it is still right for us to think that Paul is writing scripture here, Paul is not looking at this as though, we shouldn't look at this as though it is giving us God's perspective of what Paul was like but it is giving us Paul's perspective of what Paul was like. This is how Paul felt, what seemed true to him, not the truth from the perspective of God. And so when Paul says that he wouldn't have known sin if not for the law, what he means, I don't think, is that he didn't consider himself a sinner. I think that God would have considered him a sinner. I think that he argues everywhere else in the book of Romans that people know sin whether or not they know the law. This is the burden of chapter 1, that people, without having received the law, have rejected the God of creation and have worshipped idols instead. Those apart from the law will die apart from the law. This also doesn't appear to be the first time that he sinned. I don't think that Paul means that. But what he means is, but until the reality of the command appeared, he wouldn't have known the true depth and the nature of his sin. It took the command to bring about the sin in Paul to see and to get him to know the true, true nature of his sin. And it's important to point out, Paul seems to imply that he was not actually all that covetous before, right? Paul wasn't apparently filled with envy or jealousy, longing for others' things, longing for their positions in society or their possessions, and the law just came about and put a label on all those errant desires. So Paul had them in himself, and then the law comes about and says, oh, that's covetousness. And then Paul goes, oh, that's what that is. Thank you. I, was, I wanted a label for it. No, he says that's, that's actually not the case. It, he didn't think he was covetous before. Paul didn't have those desires in him. The command came and said, you shouldn't do this. And sin took the opportunity of saying, okay, you are not to do this because it's God's command. You don't need to let God tell you what to do. It was sin rebelling against the very command of God that produced in Paul all this covetousness that he didn't have before. And if the, if the command hadn't come, 
then the opportunity for sin to manifest itself in that way wouldn't have been. It's the, the point is not just that the command is there. The point isn't just that the coveting is there. The point is that that command came from God, and sin rebels against God, is rebelling against his authority and his rule, and it produces in Paul this sort of wicked fruit of coveting. So Paul now, however he has come to know it, knows the depth and the certainty of his sins in the way he, he certainly wouldn't have before. He wouldn't have known what his sin was really like. Sin is not just an accidental misstep. It's not something of an incident foible that can happen in the world, but it is a direct and purposeful rejection of God's laws. Paul knew his sin. So when he says that he was alive before the law, we need to understand that, that he doesn't mean that he was not in the category of Ephesians 2 that we typically think of, where he was dead in his trespasses and sins. We, we know the Bible uses alive and dead language very strangely at times. It certainly doesn't always, even if it sometimes does, refer to biological life and biological death. So you've got brain function, heart pumping, blood's flowing through veins and arteries, internal organs working, yeah, yeah, all that stuff. It, it can talk about alive and dead that way. But in many times, when it talks about being alive and dead, being alive is not so much a person with a beating heart, but being alive is a person who is known as God's. They belong to God. They are rightly ordered before God. They understand who their creator is, their obligations to him, and are somehow under the blessing of God. This is what it means to be alive, to belong to the one who is life. This is probably what Jesus means when the Sadducees come to charge him about the resurrection and they say, hey, we've got seven guys here, and they go through the thing, and they make this sort of absurd argument about the resurrection. And Jesus looks at them, and in Matthew twenty-two thirty-one says this, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The whole point that Jesus is making there is why are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive? Because he can, the God of life cannot be the God of the dead. If they are his, they are alive, even though they be dead. And so what Paul is saying here, I think, is in his own mind, because he was keeping the law otherwise, he, he was doing right before God. He thought that everything was, was simpatico between him and God. He didn't feel compulsions to sin. He didn't think that he was being led astray. He thought that everything was right before him and God. He belonged to God, and therefore the blessings of God belonged to him, the commandments of God belonged to him, but he thought he was faithfully keeping them. Furthermore, he felt no compulsion to sin. It was dead to him. It had no real or perceived relationship with Paul. Yet it raised up, it woke up, and it killed him. Which means, obviously, that Paul now understands that his right relationship with God is ruined. That he has impulses to deny God for no other reason than he wants to deny God. He knew his own death like he hadn't before. This whole section seems to have Paul be saying, I thought, I thought that I belonged to God because I kept the commandments, and I kept the commandments because I belonged to God. 
I thought that I was rightly ordered before God, that God and I were on the same team and we were working for the same things. But when this commandment came, when, when I somehow studied it or thought more thoroughly about it or whatever the case might be, when it appeared to me, sin rised up in me and I rejected God. And I found that I was not on God's side. I found that I was not doing what God had commanded me to do, but I was actually working against him. His sin was dormant like a bear in hibernation, but it woke up. It's not that Paul did not have sin. It's simply that Paul didn't notice it. But he couldn't lose it now. And so, his answer to the whole thing is, is the law then guilty? Is the law itself sin? He says, no, the law was perfectly fine. The law was an instrument that was being used. It's not the law's fault. The law is fine. It's sin that's the problem. It's my sin that is the problem. Sin is the culprit, not the law. Not too long ago, a man in Waukesha, Wisconsin, I think that's how it's pronounced, killed a number of people by driving his SUV into a Christmas parade. Headlines, certain headlines from CNN, PBS, read this way. Multiple people killed by SUV in Waukesha Christmas Parade. Five dead and more than 40 injured after SUV plows into the crowd. Community stunned after SUV plows into Christmas Parade. I really hope they catch that SUV and give it what's coming to it. Right? We know that, that that's perfectly fine headlines. We, we understand what they mean by the headlines. They don't mean that the SUV did it of its own accord. Right? We know that the SUV was simply an instrument. And so long as the SUV was working fine, it is not the SUV's fault. It is the man's fault who is driving the car. This is precisely what Paul is saying. The SUV is simply the instrument that was used. The SUV is not morally corrupt or guilty, and so neither is the law. It may have been the instrument that Paul's sin used to produce the evil that it did, but it is not the villain in the story. Sin is. The law is fine, it is good, it is righteous, and it is holy. Sin causes the problem. And this is what sin does. It takes what is good and perverts it for its own use. But the law is good. Why doesn't this giving of the law, giving of the will of God for his people prevent sin? That brings us to our second point, which is that sin is really evil. Sin is really evil. The question that Paul asked at the beginning of verse 13 speaks of agency. What has actually caused this death? Was it the law? And he says, no, not only was the law not sin, but it wasn't the cause of my death. My sin was the cause of my death. TV is just the laziest thing. I think that's why I love it so much. You just sit there. And, and the thing that makes TV the laziest thing is that it requires no imagination. If you sit down and you read a book, you actually have to like work at picturing what's going on in front of you, Right? But TV just kind of shows you everything. You have to do no thinking at all. Fantastic. Thank you, America. So because that, the only actual TV shows that cause you to have any sort of imagination at all are cooking shows, which for some reason I love, and I don't have the faintest understanding of why. But I love cooking shows, and I love it especially when they have like good chefs going and battling it out. I have never tasted anything like what they've produced. 
I've never been to a super fine dining restaurant, and I always have these like questions like, is it really that good? Could it, could it honestly be that good? And remember Netflix had this show where they had some of the best chefs in the world competing against one another, and they had this pantry that was just brilliant. It had all the, the most beautiful and tasty foods that you could ever possibly want. They could make anything that their brains came up with. That is not the test of a wonderful cook. The test of a wonderful cook is coming over in the middle of the afternoon to my refrigerator, opening it up, and doing world-class cookery with parsley that is not that good-looking, celery that's got those brown and kind of gritty spots in it, the avocado that's either two days too ripe and as hard as a brick, or excuse me, two days not ripe, or too ripe and it's got all those brown things going through it, right? Like, they, they get to open up the most beautiful-looking package of beef, they don't get the thing with the, the Walmart yellow sticker on it, which is like this one out of date like two weeks ago, but you can get it super cheap. If you can make good food with that, then you're a world-class chef, right? I, I'm not a world-class chef. I'm pretty okay at following recipes. I could probably make you a really good meal with super high-priced ingredients. Likewise, a really bad chef would be one who when you give them the best of ingredients, still messes that thing up. Who gives you that beautiful piece of steak with all the marbling by that, the cow that was like hand-fed and massaged in Japan, right? And they, they still bring it out and it's a charred brick of dead protein, right? It's just, it's black all the way through and you're like, that was a waste. That's a bad chef. And what Paul is doing is saying, this is, this is one of the ways in which you see the true evil of sin, because sin doesn't just take that which is perverted and bad and use it to produce perversion and badness. But sin does something incredibly more important. It takes that which is good and holy and righteous and true, and it uses it for the most wicked of ends. The law is perfect, it is pure, it is right, it is true. It's more to be desired than gold. It is sweeter than honey. And yet the sin of humans ruins the whole lot of it. This is what Paul means when he says that sin becomes sinful beyond measure. God gives the law so that you can see that even when he gives you good things, your sin will pervert it and ruin it. Sin ruins that which is perfect. It defiles that which is pure. It produces evil from that which is right. It brings about cursing from life. Paul says you can see this in my life. I, I strove to do what was right before God. I wanted to keep the commandments. I, I wanted to not covet. I wanted to honor my parents. I wanted to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. The very thing that I want, I can't do. But I do the very thing I hate. He said, there's, there's these two parts of me. One strains and strives to be right before God and to do what he commands. There's some other part of me that continually wants to simply do against the commands. So Paul continues to struggle. He goes back and forth. 
There is something that prevents him, this sin that is within him, which is not equal to who he is, but is not different than who he is, somehow works within him to produce all of the sinfulness that you see. Realize that Jesus, when we talk about Jesus being the almighty, sovereign God, and he is, every single person that he puts in his inner circle, every single person that he uses, including you and including me, to much lesser extents, was put there for a precise purpose. Peter was chosen, and Peter was made as the head of the apostles and finds this sort of pinnacle point throughout the gospel amongst all of the disciples for a reason. It's not happenstance. It's not just because Peter was the one who was there. It's because Peter was the one who was there, and Jesus wanted him. Jesus wanted Paul as well. In one sense, Jesus wanted Paul because he is the epitome of the great sinner. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul writes this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And here's the point. But I received mercy for this reason. Why did Jesus save Paul? This insolent opponent, the one who ravaged the church, who breathed murderous threats against the church and persecuted even Jesus Christ himself. Paul says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience and as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So that every single person who meets Paul or who, who thinks of themselves as this wicked sinner and thinks, I could never be forgiven. Paul stands up and he says, hello, I would like to introduce myself. I am Paul. I'm a murderer. I was an opponent of Christ. I was a blasphemer, and he saved me. You will do no worse than me. If he saved me, he will save you. Trust in the Lord. It's the epitome of a sinner. But ironically, and what makes Paul, such a wonderfully interesting person, is he is not just the worst of us, he is also the best of us. Paul says this in Philippians 3. He's talking about these Hebrew Jews who are trying to pull people back away into the law. And they're boasting in, in their flesh, they're boasting what they have. And Paul says, well, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone, thinks, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. You, you want to boast? Have a seat, son. We'll do some boasting. He says, I've been circumcised on the eighth day, right? Of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You want to talk about Acts? I've got that down. I, was, I followed all of the customs even before I could do anything. I followed the customs. I have the right race of people. I come from the right heritage of people. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, the best of the best. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. That's how much I love the law. I would persecute the church. As to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. 
I was blameless. You read what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy, and you read this, and you say, how can he say he was blameless? I think Paul would come to you and say, you go ask. You ask my parents, you ask my colleagues, ask my friends. Ask anyone who knows me. Ask my teachers. Where has Paul failed? Show us where Paul has failed. Show us the command that Paul has failed. The fifth commandment, the eighth commandment, something in Leviticus, something obscure. Where has he failed? He says they would inevitably come back and they would say, we have nothing on Paul. Paul is utterly and totally blameless. No one was as zealous for the law as Paul. No one was as capable as Paul, except for that one little thing that he could keep hidden from the entirety of the world, coveting. Otherwise, blameless before all men. Paul was zealous for God and his commands. He says, even though I was as good as I was, even in the best case scenario, it's easy to take the worst case scenario. He could have easily looked at the Gentiles and been like, do you think that they can keep the law? Worthless people, they can't keep the law. He could have pointed at many of his fellow countrymen. Look at how they fail the law continuously, but he doesn't. He picks out the best example he can and he says, I still, still couldn't keep the law. I knew the law. I was taught the law. I loved the law. I even desired to do the law before God. And yet I still failed massively to do that thing. Paul knows the evil of sin because he has lived it. And we would do well within this passage to realize that Paul is painting himself both as the agent of sin and as a puppet of sin. He doesn't deny that he does it in verse 19. For I do not do the good that I want. I don't do it. I want to keep the law, but I don't keep the law. I don't do it. If I have the desire, excuse me, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. He isn't just a victim. He is an agent. It is sin that dwells within him that's doing it, but Paul is very clear. I am the one who is doing it. Yet while he is the agent, he is also the puppet. In verse 20, the very next verse, Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He is a puppet for his sin. He is weak. He cannot overcome the power of sin. He can't do anything about it. Even even if he looks at the law and he aspires to it and he says, I want to do what is right before God, Paul says, the law provides me no help. I can't do it. We would do well to remember this when we think of sinners in our world. We oftentimes only consider sinners as those who are capable of doing good and reject it. They are also puppets for their own sin. Even if they aspire to what is good outside of the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit regenerating their heart, they have absolutely no shot. They are puppets for their sin. You were as well. Paul sounds so much like an addict here. You ever speak to an addict who wants to quit drinking, who wants to quit smoking, who wants to quit gambling? They they talk just like this. 
I don't want to do this anymore. It's killing me. It's crushing me. I don't want to do it. But it drags me back. It's almost like it's a foreign power that is over-controlling them. They're still the ones who act. Paul says, you are all addicts of sin. And the law can never, ever free you from it. So he cries out, wretched, wretched man that I am. That brings us to our third point, which is good news. Jesus is better. He's better. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? Jesus will. He's better than the law. The law has no agency. The law is an instrument. The law is just there to be used for good or ill. But Jesus is no instrument. He is an agent. Jesus is one who acts. Jesus is one who saves. Jesus who is one who, who does things on your behalf. Even before you knew him, he was working for you. 2,000 years ago, he died for your sins. He is actively, presently saving people. He doesn't leave you flailing in the wind like the law does. But Jesus comes and he saves you. And what is even better than that, he is not just better than the law. He is better than sin. He conquers it. He is Lord and master over it. He puts an end to it in your life. He puts an end to it in my life for everyone who comes and everyone who thrusts themselves at his feet and says, take it from me. He says, I have. He's better. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So if you know Christ, press on in him. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle. This isn't Paul very rarely would say something like, let go and let God, okay? Paul, Paul's going to insist that you work for it, but you don't work for it in the law, and you don't work for it in your own power. He's going to turn around in chapter 8 and start telling us how we work for it. We work for it by walking in the Spirit, by finding the leading of the Spirit, doing what the Spirit leads and directs us to do. But we do that through faith in Jesus Christ. We do it knowing that we are not on our own, that Christ is mighty and powerful and his spirit is mighty and powerful and he helps us, moves us, and teaches us, convicts us, edifies us. We lean on Christ. If you don't know him, know this. Your sins will find you out. Paul says this in 1 Timothy. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. You can look out and you can find sin in people's lives. There are, there are plenty of, of illustrations of that. He says, there are some people, it's just, it is obvious. You look at them and you're like, wow, that's some sin. He says, you also look at other people and you say, I, I, don't, I don't find it, I don't. I don't see where it is. You know why Paul can say that? Okay, Because he had the Spirit of God, and he was an apostle, and the Spirit told him to write that. Paul also can write that because that is exactly what Paul says about himself. He was blameless. That 
the faults that he had were all internal. And Paul knows this shows that I am no friend of God. Sin that is in me would kill me. You may think of yourself okay. You might think of yourself as alive to God. You might think of yourself as good enough. But friend, you are never going to be good enough for God. He is an exacting God. He is a careful God. He is a God who demands much out of his people. But thanks be to God that he is a God who gives much to his people. Jesus is better than your sin. He is better than the law. As we will sing of the wondrous mystery, here is the mystery of them all. That the God who requires so much out of you made it so that you can do nothing to meet his requirements and gives it to you anyway. He requires your best knowing that you will fail, but he gives you his best. He requires your death knowing that you have failed and he dies for you. Let us praise God in song. Let us praise him in prayer. Let us praise him with our lives. For his grace is unmeasured and his love is untold. Will you pray with me? Father, let our proud hearts let go of any notion that we might be right before you on our own. What foolishness such thinking is. We not only have wonderfully the wonderful, helpful picture of Paul, but we should know in our own selves the fruitless endeavor we take on when we try to do your will in our own power and might. We know our sin. We have seen it. We have felt its power over us. Even in our best moments, we know that our sin is deadly. It is controlling, and it perverts even the best of our efforts. And may this not give us over to sadness or pity, for Jesus Christ, our light and hope, has come. And he has given life, and he has defeated all of our enemies. May he be praised now and forevermore. Amen.